$155 million wonderland. As if by magic, 1,216 acres of wasteland have been transformed into the most stupendous exposition the world has ever known. Ladies and gentlemen, you are about to witness the most excitingly different new concept in the history of television. So you think so? All of you who are living in the year 2000 are fortunate. I think it was back in 1944, wasn't it? That's the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. Did you watch Mortal Kombat? Oh, the trailer. Yes. Yeah. I thought that was awesome and crazy looking. And I, I was excited. I saw the trailer a couple nights ago. Yeah, with the, the one fight sequence where he's like throwing the ice and it's like wrapping around the wall. It, like it looked very inventive in the first seven minutes I thought were as exciting as I was hoping. Uh, and I'm surprised because I, I didn't grow like Mortal Kombat. I, I watch people play it, but I, I never cared for fighting games or video games really. So Yeah, because this is something that's super interesting I wanted to talk about on top of the show because we're going to be talking about the second wave of adolescence. That's the name of the episodes, the American New Wave. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Gorilla Film History Now. I'm Pete. And I'm Mark. And this is a very non-traditional opener. So, <laughs> Gorilla Baby, we're coming and at you. I think it's really interesting because a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about today, it, there's a lot of heavy violence that happens in movies and yeah. a lot of drug use and a, a lot of explicit content, a lot which, of parental advisory stickers. is new. Yeah, but like Mortal Kombat about. is like the pinnacle of that. Like if it wasn't for Mortal Kombat we and a couple other games, oh my God, I can't remember off the top of my head and it's going to bother me because Street I do Fighter? game journalism. No, Street Fighter was never this gory. Mortal Kombat was like over the top with the fatalities and everything. It was known yeah. for the gore. Yeah. So, I mean, like, players it, a kill that's move. the reason why there's a rating system, like, for games, because they were like, oh, this, like, four-year-olds are going to play this and then decide they're going to break their friend's neck and rip his spine out of his throat. Like, <laughs> like I, I mean, mean, it's so over-the-top ridiculous. It like, <laughs> like, John Carpenter would go, oh, come on, really? Do you have to go that far? It... <laughs> <laughs> well, at see, least I, have I some... stopped at the head spider. <laughs> I have I have some interesting thoughts about violence in in video games because it's it's probably one of the most conservative uh, like political takes of mine. But I think '90s moms were right that the violent video games were uh, kind of degrading our culture and and yeah, messing with the kids. I don't heads. understand why you're like that at all. <laughs> no, because I mean, like you're able to watch a lot of these movies and go, oh look how revolutionary it was, and like yeah, no, like this is the way the world is. And for some reason, because once it gets to, like, ultra-violence, like, the ultra-fantasy violence that you could never actually have in any capacity, like, you'd throw up well before any of that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're Michael uh, Cimino, who we'll talk about in a little bit uh, oh, with Russian okay. Roulette. But. Or, or <laughs> yeah, the Iceman, where he's <laughs> just like, I just had to keep putting high karate on him because I just stank. <laughs> you don't feel anything. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, I, I think it's visceral, but I just don't feel anything when I blow his head off. <laughs> well, like, I mean, the polygon counts fantastic. I mean, if you're that <laughs> level and, and you don't go, oh, shit. Just see what I did. And I, I wonder where that would put me because yeah, I I, I don't have any firsthand experience with these <laughs> these yeah. games necessarily. But, you, know, I mean, you, but... Do, you get like a you do get desensitized. To yeah, it, right? oh, absolutely. I do think there's a desensitization, and I do think that there's like a level of like you know oh I need to be like this explicit or this whatever because I just want to see that level. But I think that's from a design perspective in in some cases, not necessarily a gameplay, because gore isn't what sells games. There's games that are just explicitly about, like, you're in hell and every wall is a bloody vagina, like, agony. And it's literally <laughs> like that. And it's disgusting. Nobody plays that game because it's a terrible game. Like, do like Doom 2016, that's a beautiful game, but it's gory as hell. But you know what? Like, it, it fits the theme. It fits the aesthetic of Doom, right? Like, it, you want it to be heavy metal hell, you know? Of course. Like, that's what it's supposed to be. And I am... It, see, this is where I, I trick myself, because I'm, like, anti-censorship. and Yeah. Like, but I, with the violence, I, I if I pull out and look at it culturally, I it's different to me in a movie where it could be sporadic... Yeah. Moments of, of violence. Even in a Tarantino movie, you, you get a 15 minutes fight sequence and it's bloody. But like the video game, no matter, I mean, we're talking Sega here, right, with the Mortal Kombat. But nowadays, you, we're able to distill that violence into like, here, you're a soldier in a war with a gun. Go kill everything. Yeah, um, but like that's the stuff that they were talking about like in the 1960s. 
right? Like, I mean, like they were saying that, like, Absolutely. oh no, people see but this think stuff, of they're gonna visual, wanna do this with Tommy. Guns. An immersive, an immersive visual experience with it, and we have we have some kids. Like, if you're playing, like I remember playing Mortal Kombat six seven. Now, I, I I've never been in a fight in my life, and certainly couldn't. Now wait have a won second, any. you said at the top you didn't play it. You watched other people well, play it. Now you're sure, saying you I, did it. The kid down the street, Which is I, I would I would grab the sticks every once Where in a while. Where were you he... on the twenty seventh, Mark? <laughs> I was uh, yeah, not not on the Dealey Plaza. Um, <laughs> if that's what you're asking, I wasn't in the town square. <laughs> um, yeah, that was uh, George Bush who took that shot, but um, <laughs> oh, it was uh, you in the friggin' knoll. That was you. That's what happened. You saw Looper, and you're like, I can do this. I'm going to get gold bars at the end of this. <laughs> Look, I'm not the voice that was whispering in Oswald's head before he pulled the trigger. I never implied you were. Um, <laughs> it, like, the, the violence in, like, Mortal Kombat, it's, even if it's over the top, I just think it's weird. Like, kids are, are going to look at this stuff, and they're, they're walking into this world of just, yeah, you're getting your spine ripped out and stuff. Now, it's cartoonish. Uh, you could see Bugs Bunny, you know, shoot a yeah, rifle in 1940. Yeah, but it's not for, like, it's not intended for, like, nine-year-olds and stuff. And, and honestly, like, if you're in your early 20s, like, late teens, early 20s in college, like, that might be the quote-unquote intended audience but realistically like it's like teenagers that are playing this game it's like 15 16 year olds sure and i mean i guess the age matters but it doesn't because the the flip side of this with this cartoonish is like the the call of duty games and all that stuff i mean i don't know even halo or whatever with the it's like a realistic gameplay you know if you had this type of gun this is how it would shoot so like go mow some people down and i don't know what that is the the mind knows you're not doing a real thing but like your mind also knows when you're dreaming that it's not real, but you wake up in cold sweats. I think there might be something way down deep and below that we just don't have the the, the science yeah, to get to but yet. Then it but could I, be from I don't know. I, I right because like, that's what we're going to be talking about with this. I mean, they're talking about like sure, like, you absolutely. Know, hey, you know, Bonnie and Clyde comes out, and that's where we left off last week, right? Bonnie and Clyde comes out, and yeah, then right. they, there's yeah. that shootout at the end where they get killed, and it's and it and it oh, is really crazy. crazy. It's so and it's elongated like the uh, Ostega step, step sequence. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Oh, the the yeah the montage from the Sergey Eisenstein we talked about. Yeah. Like it, it feels like that length of elongation with the shootout, and it's so over the top. There's like 40 guys just mowing them down to two people that like have like revolvers that are like pea shooters compared to what they have. You can't tell me that there weren't people going, oh, we can't have that stuff in theaters because then people are going to go, oh, I need to get me a Tommy gun and do that to so-and-so. And that was the whole idea behind all that other censorship was people aren't ready for that. If they get exposed to this on a regular basis, they're going to get desensitized to violence and society's going to get more violent. Society's going to get more depraved if we have people doing drugs and all in sex all over the movies all the time. These little kids are going to go in there with their parents and they're not going to know. It's the same talk about movies with the Hays Code with you're saying about video games. And sure, the 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 Hays Code was also it was it was a lot about like scandal in the press also, but yeah, to your point, what they it was a prudish approach to making a film. It was very uh <laughs> yeah. It was very like uh yeah, a Christian Christian a proud Christian conservative, small C conservative way yeah. to make films. And the new wave what they ushered in the violence and I mean, yeah, since we're talking about Bonnie and Clyde, there's a scene earlier where a a cop hops onto the the side of the car right to after this bank robbery and someone put, points the good gun in his in his face right he, he uh, the i don't know if it's um warren Beatty pulls the trigger one of his like goons but the guy's in the car the cops on the side of the car and they just shoot him and it was the first time you ever it's one of the first times at least in american films where you actually see a trigger pulled on one side and then where the bullet goes and what it does because it like shoots this cop in the face and then he goes bloody and then slowly kind of falls off like it's an eerie and creepy way and and I think during the Hayes Code, yeah, you could never show a gun in in it, it hitting its target in like the same frame or something. You had to cut it up, and it was a way to sanitize it. Like you had to pull out one of those aspects. Now we have radical filmmakers approaching it, and it's like guns kill people. This is what they do. And I, I was gonna make a joke earlier when you were saying like the public was saying like we can't have this violence in our movie theaters. Well, we're talking in the in the 60s. <laughs> a lot of people thought that violence belonged where we were fighting our 
war, right, in Vietnam. Yeah. It's a crazy time in American history, and it's a crazy time for American film history, and it's obviously connected. Because the Amer- American New Wave, I mean, it's it's marked by its its energy, of course, but its rebellious spirit. And we're talking films like The Graduate, Midnight Cowboy, the aforementioned Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, you get Paul Newman as Cool Hand Luke, Rosemary's Baby. Polanski. Yeah, but, no, uh, Rosemary's Baby is one of these movies. An Easy Rider. And then, like, a little later, we have, like, Taxi Driver, and we're going to talk about this week or next, uh, Heaven's Gate, which uh, is the movie that kind of seals shut this 10, 12-year period of, of a, a, it's a liberating movement in American films, and it embraces the violence of the, the time of the, you know, Vietnam War, um, and civil rights battles on the streets, on the news every night. We're also having the sexual explosion, um, free love, you know, Summer of Love's 1967, uh, the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper, everyone's throwing up peace signs, sitting in parks, having sex with each other and smoking drugs, and these were now being They're portrayed They're smoking in drugs? Wait this... a second. Hang on. No, yeah, no. Smoking no, drugs. We gotta stop right there. Uh, dude, uh, I'm gonna, smoking drugs. This is a stoner podcast, too. <laughs> smoking drugs. <laughs> is this... <laughs> They're, they were in that park this having the having in the operation. Sex and smoke of the drugs. They weren't even wearing. They weren't even I just wearing lost ties. All my Carl. credentials. They had they had three buttons off, and there was chest hair. I think one of them had a gold chain. I don't even think. I don't even the think boys, that woman had a bra on. And the the boys were wearing the earrings, and, and not the girls. <laughs> yeah, so... and why is he wearing the bra on his head? <laughs> He's smoking the drugs. He's smoking the drugs. <laughs> but um, yes, it, 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 it's it, this is the the it's a it's a crazy time in America, like I said, and and these films directly reflect that. And the filmmakers were trying to do new things, and they're trying to forge, I mean, kind of a new language for film, American film, because what what happened in 1948? The, the, this is hopping back, but it, it's it's a preface. Uh, the studios actually got sued for their vertical integration, basically, oh, and they whoa, had to lose. What? Yeah, they lost their theaters. They had to give up the theaters. It was like a yeah, it was an antitrust oh, lawsuit. Oh wait, and no, this is a I, huge. I honestly, I never knew that. Oh my god. No, I just I just learned that on the podcast right now. So, I I just thought it kind of just fizzled out because of this movement. I thought like it was the push for independence. This was and like the look second. At this and we right. look at all the money we can make this way, and let them have their vision, and they can make it for a third of the price, guys. And then we can just put it everywhere. And like they found like some <laughs> different way to make money, and they just kind of went screw it and just kind of let it go. But to be fair, that well, also that doesn't was, make yeah. any sense from a any standpoint like because we've never done that so why would we have done that with film well (laughs) and of course the studios they're they're keen you know they know how to make money and and they're adaptive so when they and it's funny too 1948 also the year like the the blacklist we talked about started and yeah i i gotta wonder if one way of them trying to grapple back some power was with these with, with the blacklist proceedings but um yeah, that, that, we talked about that before. It's just an interesting thought that came up here. But yeah, so that, that's like the first, the, the first shoe to drop is the, the studios losing the, their, their monopoly, basically. And then by the, the 50s, we have some, some filmmakers coming in who have radical ideas. We have method acting, Pete, which, we, you know, we've kind of gone back and okay, forth on Okay, real before. quick. I want to um, know this. Let's just talk about it real quick. Uh, yeah, yeah, so because okay, we're yeah, on see? it now. So we're talking about Brando, right? We're talking about Cobb. Yeah, we're, yeah. yeah this, this is the era. era. Yeah, this is the, the beginning. This new Fusion. I personally am not a fan of method acting. I am more of a fan of traditional and not necessarily the way that it was done where it's like stage acting in movies, right? I do think that the naturalistic form of acting does come from method acting. We need to have a, a more relatable or more real performance from somebody that isn't as static. I get that. Where I think method falls apart is it typically is used with characters that are super, super dark. I, I feel like it goes off the rails when it's like, oh, to play a heroin addict, I have to be a heroin addict. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, and... See, that's the, because, I mean, then at that point, we're talking about someone who's, like, and it, it, uh, putting their life in their hands. And um, I think Brando I, did. With, with weight. Well, look, and, what he, look how, so, yeah, like, like weight how he gain. slingshotted his weight his whole life. 
You can't tell me that didn't give him and, health and problems. He was uh, gaining and losing weight for roles, but it wasn't like a, the Christian Bale thing, um, which I know he's not like a method actor, no, but he, he is, is like kind of what I you're talking about, kind of this third. You Okay, you he, yeah. And I mean, Joaquin Phoenix. Heath and, Ledger. Uh, I mean, Heath Ledger yeah. was kind of in this this new method school, um, I guess you would call it, where it's not as extreme. But um, yeah, it seems to be a certain type of person who wants to bite into the did these method roles and take it all the way and i think there might be something noble in there but there's also probably an invisible line that a lot of these guys yeah and i think like uh, look at robert downey jr i don't think robert downey jr is necessarily a method actor anymore but he was you know and 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 he walked away from it and like he's still an amazing performer but like he doesn't do the crazy method stuff because that's gonna screw with his sobriety and his sobriety is more important than whatever that role's going to be because he could have a million roles. He's Robert Downey Jr. Less than zero is the is the 1987 movie, I think, was when he he was playing a heroin addict, like a, a socialite yeah, a but rich kid that's in L.A. Was. And I think that was where he started using to, to, to research for that role. But it's like, how much of that is you just wanting to do heroin? No, <laughs> like he, he like, admits that. It, it's just that method acting, you know, was making this big comeback in the 90s. You know, it was like... It, yeah, Mickey Mickey Rourke before he went yeah. boxing. Yeah, he, he had Nick, some good roles they would have given to De Niro fifteen I years. I think before, a lot yeah. of people forget Nicolas Cage was a method actor. He did his first couple films yeah. <laughs> was method acting. And what happened was, at the end of Moonstruck, after he got his Academy Award and everything, he's like, "I'm just gonna keep doing this. Why? That doesn't challenge me." So then he goes and does like Kabuki style acting in Vampire's Kiss and starts doing all these crazy roles because he's like, "Well." Let me experiment because now I want. I already wanted to get yeah, and board. I already got there. So like, why do that? Yeah, and I mean, if he's a method actor or was, it doesn't go yeah. a long way for like the, these are I, like, like so for me like so when I hear like these method actors are coming up right like with Brando and, and these guys and 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 people start really moving in this direction, I I start feeling like it's just more of an excuse to do like let's all trip acid and do easy rider and say we were method acting because like sure, all yeah. those guys were doing acid and riding motorcycles and that's so why don't we just film that and yeah, i feel it, like that's like almost like a cinema veritas kind of move and i don't feel like that's really a cinema veritas kind of move that's just let's get the studio to pay us to do all this stuff and film it, and we'll make a movie. <laughs> Which, if that's the case, I support that. Get the studio to pay for your drug <laughs> habit. Because uh, <laughs> I, I was just going to say, like, I think a good example of a method actor, uh, like Dustin Hoffman doesn't strike me as one of these. He, he doesn't strike me as going too far with a lot of his roles. I mean, the famous story about him is when they're making um, Marathon Man, he he's acting against Laurence Olivier, right? One of the great stage theater actors of, uh, yeah, 30s, 40s, and 50s, like England. And he, he's in his late career American film stage, and he's acting across from Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman has to be out of breath for this one scene, so he goes and takes a lap around the set to get out of breath, and he's, you know, breaking a sweat, and he goes up uh, to do this scene, and Olivier just asks him, he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm acting. And, and then I think Olivier said something like, no, this is acting, and then proceeded to, like, crush the scene. But <laughs> it's a good example of, like, the, the news. That's yeah, exactly right? my um, point. And yeah, he basically, yeah. <laughs> Olivier for the for, for buckets you. there, for the win. Thank you, Olivier. Um, <laughs> You are correct, sir. Yeah. Um, I, I brought up uh, Dustin Hoffman, and I, I did. I did. I, we got to talk about The Graduate because this is. Whenever people ask me what's your favorite film, I always kind of go to this. I mean, it's kind of an easy one, but I, I, I like what it it represents. We're talking here. It's Mike Nichols. He was um he was a comedian. He had this duo with uh, Elaine May, who also went on to be a great director. Um, but yeah, they were named known as Nichols and May, and they had these like little funny routines. But Mike Nichols wanted to strike out and get into film. So in 1966, he directs uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and that stars Richard Burton and. Liz Taylor as you know they had a very tumultuous and public relationship they were these like symbols of old Hollywood Richard Burton's like an old theater actor from from England and Liz Taylor was like a child actor here she's was probably one of the most beautiful women ever um and that was kind of her reputation and Mike Nichols captures their like kind of real life treachery towards each other and he he gets it in this movie and it was instantly people knew there was something new here this Mike Nichols guy and so he immediately gets the graduate which is this movie that grips been popping around for a while and they tap him to direct the graduate graduate a lot of people 
take that movie and go, oh yeah, that's my favorite. Like when I when I was with when I was with when I was in film history when I was when I was with film history too. <laughs> but like, we had our final project, right? So I go, of course, with Kurosawa, and I go deep dive into Yojimbo because nice. uh, I don't see that on the list. And I go, why isn't Yojimbo on this list? That's the most adapted movie ever. And I'm going to show everyone why. And da 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 da. I was one of three different movies. There was one other person that chose La Jetée. Okay. And there, everyone else in the class did a project on The Graduate. <laughs> it is it is ripe and rich with uh like filmic references so that is how i would defend that choice but it is oh, I mean, no i'm about keenly aware wave. of every single choice that has been made in this <laughs> film and what everything represents yeah, uh, and let's talk about the ending the water for the next 15 minutes the <laughs> how about we have the it, whole class come up and let's just Talk about the ending of this damn movie on the bus. You should have just acted it out, right? Yeah, just... but you know what? Here, let me start. Let me look with a giant malaise and oh god, no, what have I done? So, <laughs> see, okay, because I, I do. I feel like I got to defend. Oh yeah, the honor no, this go for it. Now. Yes, please. It, no, I, I don't. I don't it, mean to it is on it. An easy... I'm sorry. It's just <laughs> no, it, this is I, my this is my piano man. Okay, like this is like I just right, can't yes, take it. Yes, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I Benny and the Jets is that for me. I just I gotta leave the room. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the Graduate, I will give it has like a meandering plot, which is kind of no plot at all. And yeah, the, the the generational divide is kind of the main subject of the movie. We have Dustin Hoffman. He's like thirty years old when they shoot this, but he's playing Benjamin Braddock, like a twenty-one year old. He's coming back from college. He was a track star. He. He was a, a nerd, right? He, he graduates with these high honors, and now he comes home, and everyone's asking him, what are you going to do with your life? Well, you ever ask a 21-year-old what they're going to do with their life? They have no f***ing idea what they're going to do with their life. If they tell you, they're probably lying, and if they tell you and they know, then they're going to be like a physicist or something, because I, I just feel like it's a, it is a very anxious age, and this movie nails that. Every scene you have, I mean, I'm sure it was talked about, Pete, in your classes, the one easy thing, to, to, to every scene has water. Uh, the famous one is when Mrs. Robinson comes into his room for the first time. He hit, He's hiding away from his parents' party. As they threw him a graduation party. And he's up. He's basically leaning back on his uh, on his, his, his fish tank, his, his water tank. And it's supposed to very easily symbolize this is a kid who feels like he is drowning. He is, he's trying to get above water. He has no idea what he's supposed to do. Um, he was filled with all this knowledge. He got all these degrees and awards. But he, he just feels like this vessel floating. And he's trying to get some direction. The Simon and Garfunkel music it's like sparse and it just gets it perfectly and you get that scene where the where Nichols it's one of the best editing you'll ever see where he's editing a listless Dustin Hoffman laying around in the pool and it, it cuts back and forth juxtaposing with him like going to bed with Mrs. Robinson or he's he's taking his clothes off with Mrs. Robinson and he's pulling his swim trunks on and in the next scene in it the, the way he films this continuity of Dustin Hoffman he's just kind of losing himself in this summer after graduation and he's having this what felt to him as a very heavy and definite the, the, the defining moment of his life where he's going to sleep with this older woman but as it keeps happening it becomes casual he, he he loses there's no spark there it's just something people do mrs robinson's acting out this this cougar fantasy right and that's why she's always wearing leopard print because she's she's going after this young prey braddock as the prey he is also trying he, he, his he has youth and he uses his youth against his predator by dating her daughter and it's the only thing that can cut her down and he knows it and he he's a cynical little prick is what he is but he is representing this young generation that is gonna thumb their nose at the at their parents and, and their parents friends and is it right or wrong it's it's tough to say i mean specifically in this age it i'm critical of the adults in the room of the u.s because yeah uh, there's a lot of yeah, turmoil. Yeah, we are. The yeah, well, now, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, the graduate, I mean, all those people who love and were in the graduate, they grew up to be boomers. Yeah. <laughs> and so whatever dream was promised in this movie was, it, it, the ending is probably why it has the most resonance because they get what they want and then they realize that's not what they wanted. They just wanted to piss everyone off. 
They are the dog who caught their tail. That is what I was and just going to ask you, go you, with you thought about that. Like, what was the whole point yeah. of that? For me, it was the same thing. I was like, they're just, they he's were, just doing this to piss her off. He's not doing this to, he's yeah, doing this it, to hurt somebody. He's not doing this because he actually really loves her. If it ever gets into the love category, it's because he's convincing himself this is the right thing. This is what people want him to do. Everyone always asks him, why don't you call, uh, I forget her name in the movie, but yeah, why don't you call Catherine Ross's character? Why don't you call her? Why don't you call her? He finally does. And they actually hit it off after he takes her to a strip club trying to, like, basically be the worst version of a date that, I don't know, it, it, it's a very, anyone, any guy who's been, like, this age and, and yeah, you, you, you don't know what you want to do, these kind of things will make sense to you. Even if it's not something you would do, you identify with it. And that, that is the power of the French New Wave. And that's what the graduate infused from that school of thought. There's this, this new energy. And now, like, Dustin Hoffman becomes, like, a sex symbol. <laughs> when, and he's a new kind of actor. Um, all these these new wave actors, they're traditionally it was good looking men with square jaws on the screen. Now we have we have short guys, guys who are a little funny looking, guys who would have been relegated to character acting in the past. Now they get to be the star. I almost feel like these directors were they I think a lot of them would choose to work with these with these method actors. So I think a lot of it was by choice. But yeah, I think it was just you have to kind of almost talk about what was in the air in the sixties because it was this moment of rebellion for the younger generation. The civil rights movement and yeah the vietnam war which i mean plenty of people supported the vietnam war but plenty of people especially young people kids in college would have been a, a, a big chunk of your film going audience they were critical of it and they were sometimes out in the streets or they were throwing up a peace sign and smoking weed and thinking that was some sort of rebellion and really that's exactly what the government wants you to do is just to sit there and get high <laughs> it, yeah yeah that's why uh that's why 40 <laughs> states are like yep, yeah it, dude yeah brah <laughs> I mean, I, I also think that, him, get that. Well, there's, there's. <laughs> I, I think the, the defanging of the smoking weed and throwing up a peace single as rebellion, it's more about thinking that the, the peace sign is enough because it's not. I, the, the weed can also send you off to do uh, very inspiring things and like you could go make Easy Rider for yeah, Dennis Hopper. Or a podcast. And yeah. just sit there. <laughs> we could have a podcast where you talk about these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> We're in. We're in. <laughs> but seriously, there there is a lot of, of uh, hard work that goes into this podcast. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> but, I just, no, I yeah, no. We're doing we're doing a lot of hard work. <laughs> um but yeah to to your <laughs> That's the soundboard. Um <laughs> Yeah, but like what I was saying, like the, there's a the spirit in the air, and and someone like Dennis Hopper, who is a f- madman. The guy, he he's he's a madman. He's a renegade, a rogue in all the ways you romanticize. And and I mean, he's another guy. He ends up as this poster boy, right? Him on the the motorcycle riding down. But like he's a guy who had trouble getting work in the '50s. Um, he was like friends with James Dean, and I, by the '60s, he was like moving on from this beat era thing he was trying to do, and he just went. He let himself be himself he grew his hair out he was doing all the drugs he wanted to do and he was living that that la hippie lifestyle so it was peter fonda now peter fonda is interesting because he comes from old hollywood his dad is henry fonda yeah uh, you know a guy who would play like abraham lincoln for john ford in a movie from like the 40s he was one of these guys but it, his son and, and jane fonda who has a very interesting career especially around this time uh i, I throw the fist up <laughs> with with jane yeah. fonda like uh that very famous mugshot of hers yeah she and again this was some of this was like rich kids with dad's money going on adventures and like trying to be rebellious but um it doesn't mean there wasn't an artistic foundation that these people weren't trying to do something and they were because easy rider i mean there's some there's some heavy stuff in it now jack nicholson is is a co-star and he's a guy who in the 60s he was getting his 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 start with roger corman he wrote some movies he actually wrote the movie that the monkeys did called head (laughs) The studios were back and a lot of these guys who they normally wouldn't because, like I said, through the 50s, they were kind of losing power. Once the blacklist was punctured in in 1960 by Kurt Douglas, uh, who me and you both called like Kurt Russell and and a bunch of different names on episodes. So corrective there. It is Kurt Douglas. Once he punctured it, the 60s saw the, the, the studios losing some power, almost like in an abstract. But who was gaining power were the filmmakers because of all tour theory coming from France. 
And you get a couple early successes with Mike Nichols just taking the helm of The Graduate and making a great film that made a lot of money. Bonnie and Clyde was, it, it was actually kind of bombed at first, but it had a second life after actually a review by Pauline Kael that, that helped uplift the film and people started to like re-examine it. Um, so that goes back to last week we were talking about like the importance of almost the conversation between critics and audience with those making the film and those people making the film with or, or they're working with the studio but they also have to work yeah. you know and, and, and deliver a product yeah, and, people and also like. kind of like double back to the vietnam war stuff too i mean like the the, the big argument about the the movie was oh it's so violent look it's exposing all these people to violence and everything and you're watching the news every night at five o'clock and that's on well dinner's on and you've got burn victims on from the vietnam war you've got like shot up soldiers being pulled away on stretchers and stuff that they made out of tree branches branches like this is this is worse than whatever we're making this is ketchup like that that was kind of the (laughs) argument and like kudos to them because that was that was actually kind of a big statement on like violence in media in general it's like oh so it's okay if it's a newsreel and it's real Right, yeah, if, if our imperial government gets to go smash the hopes of people who are trying to self-determine their government. Yeah, like but I can't in, show it what, what actually happened to Bonnie and Clyde when they got shot up by the police because 40 of them decided to shoot. Right, that becomes yeah. a scandal. Because um, you're commenting and, on yeah, there's, like, society in general and how we're viewing violence because it's like, oh, it's okay if it happens to certain people. It's okay if it happens to da-da-da. That's kind of like what Bonnie and Clyde was kind of saying. It wanted you to feel bad for the criminals. It's a very postmodern viewpoint. For sure. You're rooting for them. And what's the, there's the, the couple big scenes where in uh, Bonnie and Clyde, they, they rob the bank and they say, is, this is, we're, we're here for the bank's money, not your money, right? And that, that line pops up again in uh, Public Enemy. You get that in uh, Sundance Kid, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So it's, it's kind of that we're here to, we're here for the government's money. Like these people are insured. Like this isn't to hurt you. Like the, 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 then they go from that scene and I think they, they help. They don't really, I don't know if they give them money, but there's this family who, who, whose home has been repossessed by the banks it's the great depression we have the dust bowl era and clyde gives this guy and his family they they, he hands them a gun so they can shoot at their own home which they just got foreclosed on and that was their little way to say screw you banks screw you system screw you government you are not looking out for us you have your eyes all everywhere else and you're trying to rake your money in uh what about us and that movie like that spirit even though it was from the depression area era they transposed it 30 years later on top of, you know, the counterculture of the Vietnam era. And it, it like, it just hit. It hit a chord. The Graduate does the same thing. There's not any violence or anything in that movie. But that goes through, like, the internal struggle of what it's like to be 22 in 1967. And that movie doesn't even go into, like, psychedelics. It's a very brown and black movie, The Graduate is, just like a lot of Simon Garfunkel covers. It's it's kind of a rootsy movie. It, it doesn't have the kaleidoscope of, of colors and drugs like Easy Rider does. But these movies, they have the same spirit. It's, it's the thumb of the nose at the system and it, the man. And it, it's a vague enemy. There's the, the quote from... from Easy Rider. We have Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper riding cross country. They pick up this kind of square lawyer. It's played by Jack Nicholson. But they kind of find out he he's he's a drunk. You know, they're stoners. So they kind of have that in common. And But Jack Nicholson's character is like, it's kind of square. He like works as a lawyer. But he see he's like this transitional guy. He sees what these guys are after. And he has this great quote about freedom. Oh yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about. All right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody they're not free because they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. Oh yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. That's kind of the climax of the movie. It's a little stilted. We might, it, you know, it's, it's slightly silly, but this that's the sentiment. That was what these people thought they were doing. It was that you have to go against the grain because the people who are convincing you that you're on the outside, well, maybe they should be on the outside. Maybe their perspective should be fringe. Maybe we shouldn't be doing militaristic exploration and imperialism across the world. Like maybe we shouldn't be dropping Agent Orange to smoke these people out of their villages so that they get cancer and birth defects to this day. Like we sh- maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe that's not on us to do. And uh, maybe we're the bad guy. The cops 
are the bad guys in Bonnie and Clyde. They're they're seen as buffoonish. There's scenes where critics were noting how comical some of the 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 violence was with the cops. It was like a Keystone cops routine. But that's how they thought of these people. That the, they're the clowns. We're not the clowns. My hair's long. I'm high. But you're the square. And. It's just an interesting dynamic and it is like the passing of the torch from the studio squares to these new generation of auteurs. But it swings back and that's what we're going to get to next week. For the first time in the 60s, you're getting classes by professors and directors, right? And they're teaching classes now because there's this new generation of people who want to learn how to make films, how to think about films, um, and how to do these things. How to work the technology, how to write the scripts, and, and how to... To, to market yeah, yourself. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of these, a lot up to this point, like a lot of the people were there just because they had like family that was there or they had kind of like worked themselves up in kind of almost like a blue collar sort of way or they were like, yeah, like in company town. man. Yeah, I mean, like, there's this story about like James Franco being found at a gas station. Like, that stuff happened all the time back then. It was just like, if you were a pretty person, go be a waitress somewhere. <laughs> and maybe a studio exec go, hey, sweetie, here's my number. Why don't you go? We have an audition. Like that kind of stuff like actually did happen. Unfortunately, most of it was scams. It, once you get like these guys going to these schools going, no, this look at all this stuff. Look at how it's been studied. And you have like the French New Wave guys. You have Cahiers du Cinema, all that stuff being yeah, Italian neorealism. And then these guys um, that we're going to be talking about next week all get informed by this. So, like, um, there's there's another big director that was here was Cassavetti, right? Oh, yeah. So, this – I, I got to talk about John Cassavetti. So, we're going to dial back a little – Because he's, like, super, super big into, like, Scorsese's career, right? Because doesn't he affect Scorsese? Enormous. It, not only as an influence but as a, a mentor. So, Cassavetti's – I'm going to make the parallel just from last week. Uh, I talked about, like, Agnes Varda as kind of being, like, an elder statesman of the French New Wave. These guys all looked up to her. Her early films were kind of a basis for what they ended up running with. To me, in America, John Cassavetes is this character. He is, I mean, you may know him as an actor. If you've seen Rosemary's Baby, he's like the husband in that. He's also one of these guys you're going to see his face on old black and white cop shows or Twilight Zone and all this. Like he would take gigs to just get quick money because he he really wanted to, to, to be a director. He was casting a couple movies early as like a James Dean type and he, he didn't quite have the chops. He kind of had had this method, quasi-method technique. But what, where he really started getting rolling in the 50s, uh, he moved to New York and he started something like what we talked about with Ilya Kazan's group theater. Cassavetes just wanted people who wanted to be actors coming off the street and have a studio to act in. And it was just like kind of free. It's a community thing. But he ended up finding some like talent here. This movie Shadows, which uh, Cassavetes started filming in like 57, it, it started here in, in his, his workshop. Um, they were doing some ad-lib work and something like really worked and they just kept swinging it out swinging it out until they were like i think we have a movie here and so they tried to shoot it it got a rough reception in 57 um cassavetti tried to do this like completely improvisational thing and it, it just didn't work yeah he was trying to do like a jazz music kind of thing where it's like let's just improv it, it, yeah. it the whole time he and he thought he was going to make waiting for guffman and <laughs> yeah he, he didn't realize um and someone later in his career pointed out what like john seized on when he he with his second part of the movie was that he figured out you have to have a skeleton like jazz music you have to have the notes down so we have something to go around so what he did he went back he, he rewrote it reshot a bunch of it with a more formal attitude but it still had this improvisational jazz thing and now he was able to marry the two and the energy in this movie it's just it's crazy it's if you watch breathless there's shots that they're just ripping from cassavetti's like the energy of, of people running down the, the street or, um, yeah, just young lovers talking about the nature of love. And, like, it's it, some of it's, like, pedantic and um, didactic where it's just, like, I mean, you get that with the French New Wave, as we talked about. They're just, like, kind of talking about things. But then there'll be, like, these extremely exciting sequences. And, and this movie's interesting because it actually cast, cast three people as a family. One of them was, was a, a black guy, but the two other uh, actors were, they were actually Italian, uh, but they played light-skinned black people in this movie now that's an interesting thing obviously twitter would get that thing <laughs> shut down pretty quick nowadays but i i just wanted to bring that up because i thought it, it, the story they were trying to tell is that there shouldn't be racism in this country they they wanted to show the effects of it on on one family that but if you let's have... do it with blackface because they won't <laughs> see it coming <laughs> that <laughs> 
I think he would say that he, yeah, like he wanted to reward these people who were who came up with these characters in in the in the workshop, and it, that it did work for what it was because the point of the movie was that these two light skin family members were actually passing for white, and so their everyday life was completely different from their older brother, who was was much darker than them, and he was in uh, the entertainment business. He was. He was a singer, like a cabaret guy. And he, he would just, he faced racism through his life and he would take these things home with him. And then th- his two lighter skinned uh, family members, like they wouldn't quite be able to get him. And it's just, it's this interesting friction. And it's, it's like I said, it's not perfect. It's a little problematic. I mean, Casfe is a white guy investigating these things anyways. But I thought it, it's a very bold stroke in 19, like 57, 58 to just go and make a movie like that. And that's, he, that's what his movies are all about. It's about the, the human emotion. He wasn't getting caught up on shots and, and all this stuff. On the Criterion edition of one of his films, they mentioned how you could be on screen as the star of one scene and then the next scene you're holding the camera. Um, and he kind of wanted that communal feel, the collaborative feel of this band of, of people, eight, ten people, and they're going to make a film with themselves. And it's an uh, interesting that's where that contrast band, to the auteur theory that because it kind of is. From. Where the what thing? The band apart comes from. That's where he gets that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, Tarantino. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, that's his. Uh, I, th- I might have said it last week. Yeah, uh, you did. It's a Godard yeah, like, film. Yeah. So, but what you, that, that's, you're kind of getting to is just like that. That it, when they say band, like he's literally thinking about music while he's doing this. I yeah, think. Oh, that, yeah. To me, that's really super fascinating because I didn't actually know this about Cassavetti. Because so for me, and I think this is what really drew me to Tarantino is that I am very like auditorily focused. So I really, I actually really do like Edgar Wright because he's very like stylized oh, with his editing style with music. It feels very like music video e, very Sam Raimi. So I also, of course, really liked Evil Dead series for that kind of editing. Um, I actually thought that the editing in the Spider-Man trilogy he did was also very good. But you're talking about with Cassavetti, right? Like you, you, he also like, he influenced Scorsese. Yeah. So, so, but I find that interesting. Be, yeah, I find that interesting because I don't really view Scorsese as that auditorily focused or that music focused. Like it's, I don't feel like he has a rhythm the same way that Cassavetti was maybe trying to capture it. Yeah, well, I don't- But I, I, I think that Scorsese has this rawness to him. Scorsese's a rock song. It, Cassavetti's is jazz. I think that like, cause Scorsese, I, I mean, I would, he, I definitely think he has a strong auditory. I mean. One of the best scenes is in, in, in Mean Streets when De Niro first shows up in the bar and you get uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash. Um, and as he's walking to slow-mo and everything's red. Oh, no, he is auditorily like, focused because he's obsessed with the Rolling Stones. The Rolling yeah, Stones yeah. are all of his stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that is but, from Cassavetti. You're right. Yeah, to that I would, but I would think uh, Scorsese always talks about like he's a like he would call it, like pop music, but like yeah, like garage music from the '60s, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, um, and then like yeah, more heavier stuff. And then I mean, he loves punk, and I love vinyl. They should make season two HBO if you're listening. His the the main thing John Cassavetes did in his life is um. You mean so Frank Cassavetti? John Cassavetti? Is it John or Frank? John. Oh, I thought it was Frank this whole time. Frank? No, Frank. Frank Caliendo. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, John John Cassavetes. Um, I'm such a dad, son of a. <laughs> <laughs> so he John Cassavetes was was a guy like a New York guy, and so was Scorsese. Scorsese came out of uh, NYU in the mid '60s. He he made a couple student films that like you know raised some eyebrows in in the film community in New York. Um, he was kind of getting this name, and he, his first movie, Someone's Knocking at My Door, was it, it had a, a nice success for for what it was. On the strength of that, Roger Corman pegs him to to make this exploitation film set in like the Depression era. It's it's kind of like a Bonnie and Clyde ripoff. It's called Boxcar Bertha. So, so Scorsese makes this movie, and if you watch it, and, and the Roger Ebert uh, notes it in his his review, but you see where Scorsese's going with his career. You could see some themes. You you could see some 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 musical cues. You can see some um, yeah. I think like his his swooping zoom ins. Um, you see one of those in there, so you you see kind of the start of it. But he made the movie. It, it it as all Roger Corman movies did. They were low budget and they made a little bit of money. So they always made their money back and a little more. And so Scorsese, I guess, was pleased with it from that aspect. He has John Cassavetes, like you know, as as a an older head, as my a mentor type to me. What do you think of the film? And God, John Cassavetes told him, "You just spent a year of your life making a piece. Of- <laughs> <laughs> you should go make something uh, more inspiring." Um, 
And this so... is this. I love I I love artists like this. Yes. I love artists like this. I like I don't I don't up. actually I don't tend to like the art that they make. I just like their attitude about art. Like I don't think Hemingway is like the best writer I've ever read. I just like his attitude about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It 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 gives you like yeah inspiration to hear him say it, and you don't have to be a fan. But yeah, but I I can only imagine how crushing Scorsese must have felt. But uh, he he did. He had the strength. Oh, I mean. No, that hurt him hard it, oh it had to but like probably in retrospect he feels that like he was glad Cassavetes respected him enough to give him that like what amounted to a pep talk basically because of course as he does he turns around and on the suggestion of of Cassavetes he's gonna make a movie more personal to him and he had this script called Mean Streets uh which he showed to Cassavetes he's like it's not finished uh Cassavetes handed it back to him and said rewrite it then <laughs> Which is another great uh, little just terse piece of advice. Why would from, you uh, hand me a first draft? You <laughs> yeah. Son of a rewrite it then. Should actually we should probably hit Corman because we didn't talk about him at all. Okay, yeah, let's talk about Corman then. I no, you're right. You're I'm I'm sorry. No, I because I I just remembered. I was like holy because I meant to mention him in relation, and I was like oh. He looks, if, if you see him, they made this great movie called Corman's World like a decade ago, but they interview him all throughout it and it's like every actor who, who start he, he, he gave, uh, which is, it's a litany of people. But yeah, he looks like this square guy. You can't believe that he was like this counterculture fixture. Who's like some of the names that he started? Oh, like, so, I mean, we even talked about a couple, like, Jack Nicholson, those movies, uh, his first, like, writing and acting roles were in these, like, B-movies for Corman, uh, Dennis Hopper, P and Peter Fonda as well, like, they would make, there was the Wild Angels, and, and, like, it was, like, a bike movie, and basically, Corman, he, he's known as, like, a, a schlock, like, a master of schlock. What's schlock? <laughs> schlock. <laughs> like, uh... Like trash, garbage, B midnight movie stuff. Oh it's wait! Oh oh! Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. It's, not quite. Oh. Um. Yeah. I I I don't know who did that. Yeah. These movies were more like they were kind of trend chasing. So after Easy Rider, or yeah. So after like Jaws, you you get a movie called Piranha, right? <laughs> oh. Um, which so yeah, John. Like, he started Sci-Fi Saturday before Sci-Fi Saturday was Sci-Fi Saturday. Kind of. And, yeah, because his... Like, he, like he, he, he would have made Sharknado if he had the chance. I don't think so. So, there is... A like, woman mm. chainsaws herself out of yeah, a shark no. while flying through the air. You're going to tell he me would that, make that. Did, Yeah. He no, he would make that. You're 100% right. he had the right. chance. And you know who would have been that woman? Uma Thurman. <laughs> I think this is what the distinction I was thinking of is that I think Corman, I don't know if you remember, you remember Blockbuster. You yeah. go to Blockbuster and there's snakes on a, a, a train is a movie. Transmorphers, right? You have these titles that like, I think are just meant to like confuse grandparents who want to rent a, a, like a movie on, you know, babysitting night for their nephew and like, I got Transmorphers for you. <laughs> it's like, that's not a movie anyone recognizes. <laughs> And she picks up Transmorphers. It's like, no, this is not it, Grandma. Where's Megan Fox? You fool. <laughs> I don't think anyone's asking where Megan Fox is. Machine Gun She's... Kelly doesn't even ask where she is. It's like, oh, where's... Oh, Maybe an assistant goes, where's Megan? Because she came back with her coffee. But that's about well, it. Well, I... I, I know where uh, Michael Bay is, actually. He's probably somewhere in the Middle East making propaganda for uh, the CIA, because that's what that does these days. But, uh, well, but how, who else is going to pay for all these explosives? That's true. Yeah, you need the government to, yeah, they're, they're going to bomb you. They'll fly the planes. And shit, man, if you... Yeah, his circles. whole career is literally like if you just if if you just like did a loop of the beginning of Apocalypse Now with like the napalm shot with the forest like that <laughs> like that's like I think he's just Michael that as a Bay's kid, career and he went that's what I want to do every movie that's it <laughs> he turned it off after 30 seconds it was like yeah. I, I got it yeah but i mean like that's so this guy but he does influence like a lot of people who would like go on to be like he, you know you know what these b movies are okay like it's okay to be have a little trash a little shock a little this in there like yeah, i mean you and, get like jo john waters his whole career is based on like what's the trashiest thing i can make because oh, there yeah. are people that are like you know no trash is art because they're willing to do things that and, and able to do things that these other studios are unwilling or unable to do because of bad press or because of this or or, or that and 
it, it, these films, like John Waters, like he is a legendary filmmaker. For yeah, it's, it's it's vulgar art. They're, they're like shoving yeah, taste, but bad like, taste into at, your face. But yeah, some but people Hairspray like Hairspray became a Broadway musical. Like true. Like it, yeah, he still yeah. got there because there was some. There was a genuine love of musicals. There, there was a genuine like whatever you want to call it, soul to that piece of art. And thank God that John Waters is one of those artists that, that's like, no, it has to stay this way forever. And he's like, no, adapt it like Shakespeare to your heart's content. I don't care. I want it to live forever. Because he at least he understands film history much in the same way a lot of these other artists. Oh, for sure. And he, he comes out of this same kind of, I mean, he's not one of these like film school brats as far as no. like the click, but he, he's coming out of this era where much like we talked about with the French after World War II, the 10 years after that, there was just this rush of films they could not, now finally see. With these film school brats, you get something very similar where now you're getting, it, there's like this academic sheen to these films now because you you have a professor puts the film on in the class. Now we hit pause and talk about what does this scene mean? And you just keep doing this for four years. That It's a new way to think about movies now like someone like yeah tarantino who basically is like an inside out filmmaker he uses references like uh hip-hop producer samples it's he tries to freshen up old things some people call it plagiarism i mean we can have that discussion some yeah, other time i uh i, I think like particularly in glorious bastards and django unchained uh and glory and glorious bastards he literally ripped that title from the movie The Inglorious Bastards. Right, yeah. And, like, he even has a shot like that. Like, the whole prison break scene is literally, like, a scene from that movie. And it's supposed to be, like, a mo- like his version of it. And then, like, with Django Unchained, that's supposed to be one that fits in with the mythos and saga of Django. I mean, the guy who played Django is in the bar. Yeah, and yeah, he's like, yeah. "What's your name?" And the the guy goes, "Django." The D is silent, and the guy goes, "I know," because that's his name. So like, yeah, they, they imply that it's like, like yeah, fan service name. for himself. <laughs> it <laughs> like, is the way he makes his films. Ew! I didn't even <laughs> think of that until you said that. But now that you said that, it's literally like masturbatory or incredibly inventive um in a very I mean, yeah, personalized both, stylized I way mean, i mean there was somebody yeah. that masturbated with food first oh. <laughs> <laughs> are we talking jason biggs here um <laughs> And then, like, and then these movies, like, they were made for, like, the rating, right? Like, they were made for, like, oh, this is going to be a hard R sex comedy and stuff like that. But, like, this comes from this new wave movement and this kind of misperception of it, which was, like, oh, it's it's this exploitative content. It's, like, what they're, the darkness, it's the violence, it's the sex, it's the drugs, it's the, that's what's selling all this stuff, right? Like, it, the whole idea of, like, if it bleeds, it leads in news. Yeah, but yeah. Like, it's, it's but, like, the, the, the development, like, those people had that attitude and then brought it into the 80s, and, like, that's not, I don't think that's really <sighs> what sold I still don't think that's what sells stuff. I think, like, if the content is explicit, but it works with the story, right? Like, Game of Thrones is shocking. Uh, I don't think all right. of it needs to be there. I think a lot of it is, like, you know, oh, we're on HBO, I can show boobies, you know, and like, yeah, let's have and a sex scene. I mean, like, that whole first season of The Wire has, like, a sex scene in almost every episode because they were like, yeah, oh, and, we can have sex do. scenes They know what they're it. doing with that, obviously. But they broke, they broke that after the first season because they were like, what the f*** are we doing? Like, we don't, just because we're on HBO doesn't mean we need to have nudity in every episode. Like, why are we doing this? Like, this just feels like it needs to be here. And they right, took to the it point out. where, the, uh, if I remember correctly, like Daenerys had to—I uh, forget the actress's name—but yeah, she got in her contract that she would only do like one more nude scene or something because yeah, she, did she finally got the power and was just like, "I'm not doing this shit anymore because I don't have to." Yeah, and it's like you know that's really uncomfortable that every member of your family has seen you get play raped. Like that's not like a fun thing to have there. Like that scene doesn't actually need to be there. You know, like that stuff, I I don't agree with. It's it's sensationalist, it's, and it's right. and it's there to like create this like rating or like justify the rating. Like this whole idea of like let's put in as many curse words or as this or that or whatever. It'd be like the hard R <laughs> version of whatever. That can work to an extent if like the story warrants it. But for me, like with the boys, for example, I think it like at first. 
on Amazon, like it definitely was like, oh yeah, no, this serves the story. I get it. But after a while, it's like you're just blowing people up and having this moment of gore and everything so that we, ha- because now it's like it has to be a part of the show. Like we have to have the gory blow up body scene where we shove right, explosives it, it's up now somebody's the, butt. And we yeah, like up you're and looking them. for it. Yeah. And it's like after a while, it's like it's not, but like in the first season, like all these people get like pulped. And I mean that in every sense yeah. of the word. Yeah. Pulped. And it is like pieces of them are over walls and people are getting sprayed with blood and it's like a joke. Like at that point, I I kind of feel like it's not really necessary, you know? Like it's just there to make the rating or well, make the joke. This is weird because at the beginning of the episode, I was uh, criticizing violence, but I was just going to defend the, the the especially the first season brutality of, of Game of Thrones. Uh, we're talking, but yeah, I like it. Almost it might have been to justify the violent world in which you're about to enter. History, uh, which George R. R. Martin is obviously, uh, you know, he's drawing on it. It's incredibly bloody, and I mean, maybe from the artistic standpoint or the PR standpoint, that's what they would tell you is that hey, we did this because we wanted to show you the humanity here, or it's like maybe you just wanted to make money off of showing the violence but that yeah. is kind of the nature of this industry yeah but, uh, but my point is is that like that doesn't serve a, like like if, if they you're doing it just for that like there's a reason why barbed wire isn't one of the highest grossing movies of all time it's because the movie is terrible like people were right. seeing it because like they wanted to see pam anderson in like this sexy action movie when they could have just watched a tape of her with Tommy Lee. Like, that's really <laughs> what they wanted to see. But people were like, oh, no, they want to see that, so let's give them more of that. But now that we have digital everything, you can just look at your phone and it's there. Like, there's no point anymore. So it's like, if, if it's just for the sake of that particular content, there will always be just stuff of that particular specific content. So I think from, like, our perspective, we can look at, like, that stuff, like, some of the lines and some of the scenes and almost look at them in, like, a hokey way. If you look at it from the historical lens of, like, the 60s when they're saying, like, that line in Easy Rider, like, that was a really revolutionary line. Oh, huge. That probably changed so many lives. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was years and years later that, like, you could, like, subtly contextualize that stuff in, like, how the companies interacted with the characters in the story. And like you start getting more of like, we can imply things through shots and through sound and through this. We don't have to explicitly say it anymore. And that kind of comes like... Well, because they were looking up to the guys who were making films in the 30s, 40s, 50s, like the the Hays Code guys. So like... What that that made the f- language of film like being sneaky was being clever, right? To say something. Yeah, and then there's now. this there's this door that opens. Now everyone can be on HBO essentially, and then they do that, and it's almost like I feel like after, especially after the summer of '69, and kind of like that failure of that movement. Yeah. Because they went, oh, we can change the world instantly, and it didn't happen, and then they kind of just caved. And then yeah, became they didn't, they didn't want to do fifty. 50- and years of work, which is what you have to do to change things. Yeah, so that's like, a very good point. So like, they got disenfranchised because it didn't happen in front of their eyes. Sorry. And anyway, scrambled. Sorry, I yeah. had to do my little two second rant. I got really no. Happy. That I mean, but it, that's the it, truth. But like, that's kind of what happened. But what happens after that is the artists go and kind of start dialing it back in, almost right. Like, there's still like, let's put boobies in movies. And let's do a lot of sure. sex and drugs, but it's it's not like essentially well, for the sake of it anymore. Like because the seventies had like this. In my opinion, it's the best decade of film. Like easily, there there are yeah, so I mean, many like, you like, get, like, great films. Okay, okay. Here's here's an example. Here's I'm gonna throw this at you. Here's That's a curveball. You ready for it? Get ready. Huh. Are you ready for that? Is Deep Throat an American New Wave movie? <laughs> <laughs> Debbie does Dallas. Uh. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, literally, like, friggin' Jack Nicholson was at that premiere. Like, like people thought that, like, Deep Throat I, was, like, a say cinema yes, revolution. Because Min- but, like, that Midnight kind of Cowboy. proves our point, right? Like Midnight Cowboy was an X rating, and it won an Oscar. Which, yeah, but, like, it, to, to... It wasn't exploitative, though, that movie. No. It, it wasn't. It's, yeah, it, it was. The, it was. It, it was kind of almost like Upton Sinclair's *The Jungle*, but with like sex workers. That's wow. Yeah, it was kind of to, like you kind of needed you... to like what this is really like. That's one thing, but like *Deep Throat* is kind That's of the perfect example point. of like they thought that this was the thing, right? Oh, it's it's the actual content. And, like, these guys that were doing those movies thought they were really, like, making romance movies. 
This is just, this is what happens when you love somebody. You f- <laughs> like, let, why do we cut away? Let's just have this be the movie. And like, it was like, oh, it's this, this high is Lenny art Bruce, form. Yeah. And then it kind of just goes kaputsky when VHS comes out. Well, yeah, you're, I mean, this is uh Because now you don't Anderson need them anymore. Movie. Yeah, like that's, that's literally what happens. But like, that's kind of what happens with all of that pseudo, like, we're doing the content for the content, right? Like these movies that we talked about are important, not because like the graduate isn't important because uh, of the fact that Dustin Hoffman is acting out this cougar fantasy and there's all this sex in it. And we're talking about this or that Bonnie and Clyde isn't important because they're blowing crap up and blowing people away at the end of the movie. The reason why that these movies were like, we talk about them now is because there's a lot deeper stuff to them. And you don't actually have to look that hard into them. It's just now they're, this is the first time that we're really talking about these themes. And then like, it's from these bloody roots. If you would like, if if you like that term, I'm going to borrow that from Sepultura. Roots! Bloody (laughs) roots! Kind of blooms the new life of, of film. You know, like, like there's this, there, there is like, there's blood in the soil. Yeah. We, there's still something that's going to grow out of this. It's going to turn into something beautiful. It's going to be a a deadly beautiful thing. But what if the plant is uh, a cocaine plant? (laughs) <laughs> that's what oh, happened that's the how the 80s happened. Oh, that's right. Oh, oh, so, oh, now this is what happened. We took all those guys' careers that were going to be people, that they were going to do something, that they were like going to be big ones in Hollywood, and then we lined them all up and shot them in front of coca plants, and then the blood soaked in, <laughs> yeah. and then we built... We took some of the method acting stuff that da- Daniel Day-Lewis does, right? And, like, we made, like, a little hatch thing, and we have, like, a little village, but there's all neon signs on outsides of, like, a Coca-Cola sign. Or, like, or like one that's just all Japanese characters, because let's fetishize that for 40 years. This is, this is Ready Player One again. <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's all these cultural signals. Yeah.